The amount of data that healthcare churns out is almost incomprehensible. Apparently, somewhere near 30% of all data generated in the world is healthcare related. So if we can't do much with all of this raw data, that's a lot of stuff being generated for not a great deal of return. What are some of the ways that we can take raw data and turn it into something useful in healthcare? And why do we even need to do more useful things with all this data anyway? Well, today on the show, I'm chatting with Tom Bryant from IQVIA. And in this episode, we're going to explore how to create research-ready, real-world data while retaining data sovereignty and a lot more too. Collaboration starts with the Conversation Team Health Tech. Let's make it happen. Welcome to Talking Health Tech with Peter Birch, a podcast featuring conversations with key players and influencers to promote innovation and collaboration for better healthcare enabled by technology. With me today is Tom Bryant. He's a Senior Director and the Practice Lead for Real World Solutions for IQVIA in Australia. He's responsible for the management and growth of IQVIA's real world data analytical services and the application of the proprietary technologies that transform raw clinical data into research-ready data. Previously, Tom held global roles with IQVIA in Europe and the USA and was previously policy analyst at the World Health Organization prior to joining IQVIA. Hey, Tom, how are you going? Great. Great to be here. Good to have you on the show, mate. Thanks so much for joining. Yeah. Congratulations on the uh, the summit as well. It was fantastic. Great conversation. Thanks for coming along and checking out the sessions too. There was some really good conversations and some of them actually tying into a little bit of what we're, we're talking about today. So it's great to keep the conversation going. But before we dive into, into all of that, it'd be great to learn a bit more about you and what you do. Tell us a bit more about, about Tom. Yeah, so I grew up in Australia. Um, I actually always been attracted to science. At university, I ended up actually working at the Victorian Eye and Ear Hospital, working in the bench, doing a lot of work on the, the cochlear ear implant under Professor Graham Clark. But then the world came calling and I, I went away, went and studied at Imperial College over in London and subsequently got a job at the WHO working on some policy. After that, I joined what was then known as IMS Health then became IQVIA and I've had kind of, a, I guess, a sponsored trip around the world doing some amazing roles and contributing to the global business there. So it's been a fantastic opportunity to work with them and it's brought me home as well. And we're doing some really great stuff here in the local market as well. So I'm excited to share some of that. And for those that don't know IQVIA, tell us a bit more about the company and also the, the real world evidence stuff that you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so IQVIA, complex organization. So I kind of keep it as simple as I can, but there are principally two parts. Uh, there's a clinical part of the business that does contract research or CRO, contract research organization is what they're known as a CRO. What they do is essentially clinical trials on behalf of pharma, biotech, medtech, and even government as well. So they principally uh, provide bodies as well as infrastructure and, and process to help deliver clinical research on behalf of other the stakeholders in the marketplace and we do that globally um, and probably the largest player within the CRO space and then the other component is really data and analytics and really that's made up of the legacy IMS side of the business Um, and that really is a compilation of huge amounts of data from sales data to clinical data in the form of EMR and other forms of data that we're able to do. The premise of the company really you know upon merger in 2016 was to bring that clinical data and process together with the commercial data and process to create an end-to-end and we call it molecule to market and that's what it really is there to deliver upon helping in particular pharma biotech and medtech as I said um, bringing their products to market. Yeah cool and so real world tell us about real world what's that? 
Yeah, real world is a division. It really sits on that intersection in the sense that in its simplest terms, real world is is essentially evidence or data and insights that are generated as a product comes to market. So as real patients outside of a clinical trial context begin to use products, you begin to generate evidence and it can be in the form of that that's captured in the clinical systems or commercial systems for that matter. And then you've also got the ability to run prospective studies as well, right? So if you have a ingoing null hypothesis or hypothesis around how a product is supposed to work and you want to measure the outcomes for that, you can also prospectively measure that as well. So it takes from different parts of the business I described before in the sense that you can use the data And you can also enrich it by doing prospective clinical trials or trials or studies as well to form really concrete understanding of outcomes and how patients actually perform on therapies. Very cool. Okay, great. And so talking a lot about the data and we've kind of alluded to this concept of taking raw data that comes out of a healthcare setting and turning it into something meaningful, research-ready data. What, What does that actually look like in real life? Yeah, Let's start with like the use cases, I think is a nice place because research is only useful if you know what you're actually researching as well. So for us, you know, the application of real world data, it really spans market access, regulatory and even clinical as well to establish obviously expansion of indications, the appropriate use of therapies and using the therapies for the right patient at the right time as well. So it's really important that we understand what those use cases are and making sure that they're acceptable to ethics, making sure they're acceptable to the data custodians and making sure that they actually deliver utility and insights to the people who are delivering healthcare as well, which are the physicians, nurses, and other support staff as well, which is critically important. But once you are able to at least get an understanding of what those use cases for are, and you begin to look at how you can get the most out of that data for those use cases that are established as well. And for us, it's really a stepwise process in taking it from data in the raw form to something that's actually can be applied to clinical use cases or clinical research questions that are established. So take us through those different steps. Yeah, of course. So really, there's five in our process that we look to to make raw data research ready. The first is really data protection, so de-identification, anonymization. We have a fantastic group called Privacy Analytics that obviously help to support that and actually you know, do a variety of different efforts that not only de-identify the data, but also establish data governance frameworks. And we do that for all levels of data custodianship, be it from government all the way down to an individual practice. The second step is standardization. So once you've got the data and you have access to de-identified data, you want to be able to standardize it so that you can obviously look at the data fields and making sure that those data fields match up across the health system and that you're actually talking the same language across each of the sites and within the data set itself. Third step is enrichment. So as you know, you mentioned, you know, 30% of the world's data is, is healthcare. A lot of it's pretty ordinary in terms of the quality of the data and the completeness of the data. So we're lucky in the sense that we've got things like natural language processing in-house. We have other forms of enrichment of the data set in prospective evidence gathering and also good experience of being able to link data sets as well to plug gaps within certain data sets to create something more comprehensive. Fifth step is is analytics, right? We have a variety of different analytics. They're agnostic to method. We provide all sorts of analytical methods to be able to help support research, and we don't necessarily favor one over the other. We know that each of those analytics and methods have certain applications that are right for the right data set at the right time. So we have clinical workflows that you're able to plug into and use appropriately. 
And then the third is is really API at the doctor interface. How do you actually take those insights and that evidence beyond publication within established and credible journals? How do you actually take it to the doctor interface? How do you shape diagnosis? How do you provide good evidence in the hands of doctors so that they can make better decisions for their patients that are sitting in front of them? Yeah. And so is there a lot of work that you then need to do to then plug into those existing tools and EMRs and different things that clinicians use to then present those insights during a consultation or after? Yeah. Typically we work through partnership because we, you know, there's an old saying in healthcare, do one thing well, right? So if you start to go too far off the reservation with what you're doing, you you do run into some problems. So for us, we typically partner with those that are plugins into the medical software systems or the medical software systems themselves. And so we really have open partnership and it's, it's dependent upon client need as well. Typically the evidence that we generate is for pharma, biotech or government. And we help to work with them of what's their preferred way to get that out into the doctor's hands as well. Sometimes it may be through API at the doctor interface. Other times it's educational programs as well, right? Where we work with third party to do marketing programs or other medical education that's appropriate for the rollout of obviously the evidence that's been generated through the real world study. And back to the point around standardization too, you know, that's really important that we're putting the information into standard formats so that it can be read consistently. Talk to me about how you approach standardization and make sure that data is consistent. Yeah, of course. It's a critical step here. You form what's known as a common data model typically, but there are different standards. You know, for IQVA as an organization, clinical research is is front of mind. And so naturally, we tend to gravitate to those types of standards. So the one that we are most aligned with is probably OMOP, which is through Odyssey. And OMOP is a clinical research standard. And that's one that is an open source and something that there's a broad community of clinical researchers that are constantly contributing to that within reason to create a a common data standard across different therapeutic areas, different medical systems and information systems to really establish a common data model. An alternative to that is really FHIR, and I'm sure a lot of your listeners are very familiar with FHIR. FHIR is slightly different to OMOP. FHIR is a messaging standard within healthcare. But what's really pleasing here is because there's been a hell of a lot of investment in both OMOP and FHIR, it's important that we bridge systems wherever we can, although they're not entirely compatible. It's really important that there are bridging efforts that are underway. And and what's pleasing is that both OMOP and FHIR are actually getting together and they're established a working group to work on bridging of the standards, which would be incredibly powerful because if you have both the clinical research standard alongside of the messaging standard, it becomes an incredible, powerful infrastructure that allows researchers and the health system itself to be able to not just generate evidence, but also translate that into the systems as well, where doctors are actually providing care. Do you think that's where a lot of the conversation around that infamous I word in healthcare, the interoperability conversation kind of stems down to is that if we get those things right at the the plumbing level, as um, people often refer to as fire, you know, the standards around data, if we get that right, then the rest can flow from that. I think we can be optimistic that we'll see some gains there. I can't say it's going to be a silver bullet. I don't know of any silver bullets around interoperability at at healthcare. To me, it's like a massive ball of jumbled wires, right? And you can begin to untangle some of them and find some streamlined processes. But it's no silver bullet, but definitely a a step forward in the right direction towards greater levels of interoperability. Uh, Healthcare is a decision-making process that's not always rational. There are individuals involved that have different needs and wants. And so they're not always aligned with one another. And so I think you've got to do what's best possible for where you work and for hopefully having that broader philosophy of also contributing to transformation or improvement of healthcare wherever possible as well. 
it's poetic in a sense. It's, uh, <laughs> yeah. it's a nice way to put it. Yeah, I'm always very philosophical about the healthcare industry. You have to be. <laughs> and so we do all this work to get the data in a format that makes it usable. What are some examples of things that it can be used for? Examples of how we, or the clinical use cases that we see as being most appropriate, it starts with retrospective analysis. So how do you interrogate data sets to understand really critical clinical research questions? Um, so retrospective analysis is really important for us. You might ask questions of, you know, why are these particular patients performing better on a certain therapy and see if we can find corollaries relating to that, or worse for that matter, what type of side effects are in fact linked to other comorbid conditions or polymedication, those types of questions can be easily answered most of the time from the data. Beyond that, you obviously can use it for clinical recruitment purposes as well. So you can look at to understand how you actually can interrogate data sets to also identify patients that are appropriate for certain types of clinical trials, especially difficult to recruit clinical trials where the patient might be underdiagnosed or undiagnosed as well. So really interesting applications. And then more complex analytics as well where we apply machine learning algorithms to broad data sets and train them locally, which is what we're doing in a couple of cases at the moment, where we're able to take those machine learning algorithms that were developed in other markets and actually apply them here in the local environment, adapt them, and then you're able to really help doctors support their clinical decision-making. And it could be diagnostics, it could be choice of therapy, um, or it could be just a better understanding of what's going on with the patients and how they move forward. And at the Summer Summit recently, a few of the sessions we had, we talked about the use of data and some of them in a research context too. But often the conversations around effective use of data in healthcare came back to this point around a lot of the challenges in effectively delivering meaning with healthcare data isn't necessarily the technology or the algorithms or getting that kind of functionally there. It's actually more a problem of culture and getting buy-in from the different stakeholders involved. You know, clinicians need to see value in collecting data properly and patients need to see value in it being shared. Do these types of things resonate in your space as well? Yeah, absolutely. In, in a couple of different ways, really. The first is securing data access. Um, we make a lot of effort to established relationships. We have over a billion patient records that are in a de-identified sense globally and, and a lot here locally as well. And we establish relationships with the sites to one, give them solace that we're obviously handling data to the highest possible standard, that we're consenting for the appropriate use cases that they agree with. So the data access process is quite a, a detailed one in which we form relationships and trust and bond that exist there. But it really also comes down to understanding what their needs are, right? How can we help translate the data into something meaningful for the way in which they practice medicine and not force it upon them, but instead provide them with additional evidence and insight that may help them obviously solve problems with their patients and help to address particular issues that they're experiencing with their patient groups as well. And there has to be a really effective feedback loop there. When we develop evidence in the marketplace, we do it in a controlled sense. We roll it out in pilots and studies. And then once we obviously apply it to a broader data set or the whole health system, we also seek feedback to understand, does this still make sense? Has the market evolved? Has the clinical, uh, I guess, the treatment environment evolved? Have the patients evolved? in a meaningful way where we have to go back to obviously the analysis that, that has been done to make sure it's still relevant in the current context for the physicians. I have no idea if this question is going to make sense, but 
thinking about all of the work that you do in terms of IQVIA of collecting this data and putting it in a format that can make sense and then derive meaning from it, a lot of it sounds like you're collecting that, making it ready to be then used and then for others to derive value from it. It's almost like you're creating for the artist, you know, you've got all the, the canvas and the paint ready to go. Is there any work that you do where you kind of finish the painting and say, hey, this is what we found. Does anyone want to do anything with it? Yeah, absolutely. That really describes probably more of what IQV has done historically. Um, mm -hmm. We're very, very lucky in terms of the data sets that we have access to, the technologies we also have access to, but also, you know, within our real world team, there's over 5,000 people globally working on a variety of different studies or engaging everyone from the FDA to the EMA to the PBAC, right? And we have an incredible breadth of insight. And so, that's the historic IQVIA, which is to take those data sets to work with the regulators and the payers or the physicians also and develop evidence in a really a closed loop, right? And then publish that and take it to the market. There's not much that we can't do, not to be too arrogant, but I think that increasingly what we're looking for is actually instead to create platforms, just as you described, which is to put not just our data, our proprietary data, but other data sets in place, put them in common standards and create large data sets that also have analytical platforms that choose your own adventure. We don't, yeah. we don't for force feed methodology. We don't force feed data. And we also looking for the safest ways in which we can create data repositories so that we don't, in fact, have to take data offsite, duplicate data and put data at risk, but instead create this concept of what's known as a federated access model, which, as we said, just standardizes the data. And that allows us to essentially ping queries to the sites or to the nodes. And that allows you to do really effective real-time research without having to compromise the positioning of the data into kind of centralized data warehouses. And so onto the point around clinical trial recruitment, how do you go about making sure you're taking into perspective the diverse population across different geographies and, you know, using the data effectively to make sure you're, you're well representing across a certain patient cohort? Yeah, it's a great question. I actually heard this on the summit as well. And I think it's a it's a great question to pose. We take this really seriously for a couple of reasons from, you know, uh, pure scientific terms, we want to reduce bias wherever we can, right? So we use a variety of different artificial intelligence and also machine learning algorithms to help establish a better process of recruiting patients into trials that are most appropriate. But we also need to account in particular for a market like Australia for diversity, right? And there's a couple of factors here. The diversity of ethnicity is a really, really interesting question to solve for in clinical trial recruitment in Australia. But perhaps even more important is, in fact, the regional to metro divides or rural to metro divides as well. So accounting for bias that exists in clinical trial recruitment because simply, you know, there's fewer sites out in regional and remote areas of Australia is a really important question. And there was a fantastic MRFF grant that was targeting teletrials, which essentially helps to support diversity of inclusion that's more geographically focused and we're part of some of the efforts there of how do we use our data and our methods 
to help support the analysis to recruit patients in without bias into be more inclusionary or be more inclusive of diverse populations. But also, how do they actually factor into our own trials? I mean, we're running many hundreds of trials here and elsewhere every year. How do we actually use that those analytics and those technologies to support our own efforts in running clinical research in the clinical trial space? Mm-hmm. So you mentioned that there's that you've got over something like a billion patient records globally. Where do you get all this stuff from? <laughs> Where is all the information coming from? What sources? We typically source it from individual sites or through agreements where we can obviously access de-identified data. We typically handle de-identified data. So you have to remember it's across over 100 countries and there's multiple, Mm. uh, obviously, countries and there's very large countries in there as well. But it's a lot of data to to work with and it doesn't stop at the clinical data as well. We've got other lucky enough to have other data sources in-house. Tell us a bit more about the other data. So... One of the more interesting data sources, not necessarily kind of perfect for clinical applications, but we have what we term consumer health data. And so what that is, is at point of sale, we're able to access not just the prescription data, but also non-prescription data as well, right? So part of our business here, at least locally, looks at trends of non-prescription data. So things like over-the-counter medications, anything that's purchased in the pharmacy that's a non-prescription, we also cover. And we also link that to grocery data as well. And for you, as I can imagine, you obviously your family would probably purchase things like vitamins, other forms of supplementary care. They're all covered as part of like those non-prescription data set or consumer health. And so for a market like Australia, which I think that the sales in consumer health are now higher than in fact prescription medication, we obviously have a very good read on the data that's available there and provide commercial analytics mostly to what we term consumer health companies the likes of the vitamin companies, other supplementary therapies that you take alongside of prescriptions. So does that mean you could look at, say, in a particular demographic or an area, you know, they purchase a lot more of this particular supplement and then based on all this clinical data, the de-identified stuff, they have higher rates of this particular issue? Yeah, you can. And you can also see like where it's not just detrimental to therapy, but also beneficial to therapy. So like a good example is osteoporosis, right? So there's a number of prescription medications for osteoporosis. But in addition to that, if they're taking over-the-counter medications like vitamin D, or in fact, they're taking calcium supplements, which are partially effective, that's a good sign, right? And what you want to see is not only corollaries at an aggregated level, but also you can start to run basket analysis. So like how many people who bought this prescription for osteoporosis also bought vitamin D? at what cadence, right? And, and so it's really helpful to understand buy-in in the health system around prescriptions. And there's a lot of really, really powerful analytics that you can run there to understand how effective are the treatments here, not just in the prescription form, but also non-prescription form, which gives you a sense of how they're adjusting their lifestyle, not just by taking a pill, but by actually kind of shaping their behaviors in their life to make sure that they are feeling better and that they're supporting their healthcare as best they can. Such an interesting area taking such like copious amounts of data to then get to a point where you can find a really specific kind of outcome or a solution there. Yeah, you have to start from a hypothesis. There's so much data there, especially in the consumer health space or the non-prescription space. You really need to lock in on certain established 
over-the-counter therapies that support overall patient performance or outcomes, right? You, you can't kind of go trying to find a needle in the haystack. Instead, you start from a really solid base or clinical research question and you work back from that to see where's the data, what have we got, what are the corollaries and start to like almost like uh, reverse fit it. Um, yeah. which is obviously there'll be benefits from applying things like machine learning and artificial intelligence to the size of those data sets. But for the time being, we're working backwards and working off established clinical practice and change of lifestyle alongside therapeutic good and trying to establish the corollaries about how patients are actually behaving and what outcomes are being achieved within those environments. Very cool. So then thinking then looking forward, the, the future for IQVIA and, and what you guys are working on, what does the next couple of years look like? Yeah, I think we're in a fantastic position and we often use this phrase built for this moment. And, you know, what we've curated in terms of the unique data, the patient records, the technologies, and more importantly, the people is something that doesn't happen overnight. Healthcare is an attractive place right now. But that will change as the pandemic begins to wane and hopefully things return to normal. Healthcare probably won't be at the top of the political agenda or, in fact, the social agenda for that matter. But we continue to do what we do, right? And we believe we're in a position where we state that we're built for this moment in terms of the data access, the technologies to translate data into insights and shape healthcare. And we're really, really obviously upbeat about our ability to do that, but it doesn't stop with what we've got. We're constantly looking at alternative data sources, new technologies, new use cases that are appropriate for the evolving healthcare landscape. The way I also think about the future is where were we five years ago? You know, if we think about that, you cast your mind back, we were probably centralizing data wherever we could. We were creating huge data warehouses or data lakes, which were very advantageous for analysts or data scientists that lived in silos, it sometimes became disconnected from the people that we were wanting to answer questions for, the doctors, the mm. researchers, the governments, the pharma companies. These stakeholders sometimes became disconnected from that centralized access model and those bulk data integrations that we saw five years ago. Increasingly, I think what we see more of is federated access models, where what that means is how do we keep data on site? We're essentially able to log into systems that pose questions to that data network, which might be, you know, what's the HbA1c of a certain patient cohort across all of Europe, not just within one particular doctor's surgery that I have actually copied their data into a centralized data warehouse, right? And so that to me is the promise here. And, and we see that in our own business. Five years ago, we created what was known as the Oncology Data Network in Europe, which was seven markets. I think it was 90 on sites and I think it was hundreds of thousands of patients. And all that data was essentially centralized in France in a data warehouse. Now we're into the 2.0 of what that looks like, which is really akin to where we're moving as an organization. I think the healthcare industry is moving too, which is Digicore. And Digicore is a federated access model. It's a translation of that centralized data model into a federated one where we actually standardize the data on site and enrich it on site and allow us to, instead of taking that data off site and interrogating it, we instead pulse that data or that data node and say, again, how many patients do you have that looks like this? Or how many patients might be helped with certain diagnosis or therapies that look like this once we've generated the evidence? So that's really exciting. I think it's not going to be something that happens overnight, but there are directional shifts that we're seeing in the market. Singapore's converting all of their data into an OMOP format, as is South Korea. 
certain parts of the Australian data ecosystem have also been converted into common data models as well. So we're seeing pockets of movement and I think that it's been accelerated by COVID also. So that's really exciting and hopefully we continue to see good advancements towards those types of models because it will lead to a much more efficient and effective uh, research environment and overall healthcare system. No, I agree. I look forward. I watch it with interest because, as you say, IQV, a large organization, global perspective. I'm sure there's many more conversations we could have on the podcast that touch on a lot of these interrelated topics, but we'll leave it for now on this particular topic. And anyone can check out the show notes of this episode and find out more about IQV and the work you're doing on our website. And we'll put the links in the podcast here. Tom, I really appreciate you making the time. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to the show. Check out TalkingHealthTech.com to connect with other people in our community and to learn more about the Australian health tech industry. Also, make sure you hit subscribe on your favourite podcast player so you don't miss an episode and share this episode with a few people who need to hear it. Now go make it happen.